is good to be back with all of you. Sherry and I had a, a couple weeks where we were away on a family reunion slash vacation uh, out in the West, which was a ton of fun. It had been years since I had been out in Colorado. And then we actually kind of went from there into Southern Utah and to Moab and Archers National Park and saw some, some really cool stuff. And um, we put about 3,700 miles on the van over the last couple of weeks. So time for an oil change. And, um, but really appreciated the time. And if you've ever made that drive from Illinois out to Colorado area, um, you know that there's this large swath of that called Nebraska. <laughs> and, and in Nebraska, um, you don't really need a steering wheel in your car at all. It's just like this straight line that goes on forever. If you've ever driven south through Illinois, that's like Nebraska just flipped the other way. It just seems to never, ever end. And I actually brought a picture here. It says when you enter the state line, Nebraska, the good life. <laughs> I, well, um, <laughs> and then when you make it to Colorado, actually uh, Eastern Colorado feels a lot like Nebraska for a pretty long time. And then you get to the Rocky Mountains. And when you get to the Rocky Mountains, the nature of your drive starts to change pretty dramatically. Right? There's all these switchbacks and you feel like as you're climbing the mountain, we're making our way up to Estes Park. It's like you, you're never going straight. You're only ever turning as you kind of curve through the mountains in order to make it to your destination. And I think that the reason I bring this up is because I think that sometimes our assumptions are even probably, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe more our desires as it relates to the way in which God operates in our lives, the way that, that his plan is going to unfold and progress in the, in the human story, is that it's going to look a lot like Nebraska. That it's going to be straightforward in a clear path. But oftentimes, our experience of, of life, our experience of God's plan progressing in our own story, it oftentimes feels a lot more like a road up the mountains and there's twists and there's turns and it can leave us feeling a bit carsick. If you're new with us today, we're in the middle of a, a, our summer series entitled By Faith. Uh, it, it's a, a phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again in Hebrews chapter 11 as the author of Hebrews cites example after example of these Men and women whose lives demonstrated that they trusted God. That they believed in his promises. Even as they waited, even, even as they experienced things that, that seemed to be contrary to the promise. And they looked forward to, to what God would ultimately do to the realization of his declared promise. And so they lived, the, the people cited in Hebrews 11, they lived as a people of the in-between. Between the, the delivery of the promise and the realization of that promise in Jesus. And they looked forward. And the author of Hebrews cites these incredible examples of faith, not, not primarily or merely as a history lesson, although there's value in knowing their stories and understanding that. But rather, he is teaching the church how to live by faith as followers of Jesus. 
He's instructing us. Because we too are a people living in the in-between. For, for those of us in, in seeking to live as followers of Jesus right now, we live in between the inauguration of the kingdom of God at the arrival of Jesus and the fulfillment of that kingdom. When Jesus is going to return, when he's going to finish his work and he's going to enact perfect justice and every wrong thing is going to be made right, He's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be the, the restoration of all things. But until that day comes, right, we live as a people in waiting, looking forward to the promises of God. We live as a people seeking to trust in, to find our identity in what He has declared to be true and respond in faithful obedience to the one who made the promise. This is what the author of Hebrews wants to teach us, wants to instruct us in. And oftentimes, for most of us, it feels a lot less like a highway in Nebraska and a lot more like a switchback heading up the side of a mountain. And I think this is certainly true for the Old Testament patriarch known as Joseph. Many of you might be familiar with his story, we're going to look a little bit at, at the example cited in Hebrews 11 of Joseph and his experience of faith as he looks forward, as he waits for the promise of God. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And once again, this is just a single verse in Hebrews where the author cites Joseph as one of these examples. This is Hebrews 11 verse 22. It says, by faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. That's odd, right? We can all just acknowledge that. Like of all, of all the moments in the life of Joseph that you could cite as an example of faith, the author chooses one that feels to us to be a bit obscure but remember here the author of hebrews while he could cite any number of examples from the life of joseph that that are instructive to to what it means to live by faith he's he's also tracking the advancement of the covenant promises of god that that he's going to establish the family of abraham in the promised land that this family is going to become a great nation from which, out of which, God is going to bless the entire world through the provision of a Messiah. And so this moment, while it feels a bit obscure to us or an odd choice, this, this is a moment, it's a key in the progression of this promise. But I do want, as we begin, I, I want to root this, this single verse in in the overarching story of Joseph, because Joseph, like this is an incredible moment of faith, but I want us to track a bit of the trajectory of faith in Joseph's life because he lived a life of faith. This is the first thing we see here in this passage is the life of faith. I told you, I mentioned that one of the reasons that we went out to Colorado um, is because on my dad's mom's side, my uh, grandma Moore, um, we had a family reunion, and, and the, the Fraley family, my grandma's maiden name, 
um, gathers together out in uh, Estes Park, Colorado. They've done so about every five years for the last 30 years. And, and this was the last of them. The, the generation that started this family reunion is, um, is there's only three of them left. There were 13 kids uh, where my grandma had 12 brothers and sisters and there's three left and they're mostly in their 90s. And so it's kind of at that stage where it's gonna sort of dissipate to the, the smaller families now. Um, and we would gather together in the evening and there's a rich history of, of faith and, and um, pursuit of God in the Fraley family. And we would, one evening we gathered together and one of my great aunts was sitting at the piano playing hymns and we had like a family sing together. And then on the, one of the last nights, the three remaining siblings who are 91, 89, and 87 uh, could not attend in person, but we had a Zoom call with them which was hilarious. Because if you can imagine like three 90-year-olds trying to Zoom, it was, uh, there was entertainment value in that just in and of itself. But one of the things that they started to talk about that I was completely unaware of, I had noticed before in my grandma's generation that most of her and her siblings all were college educated or beyond. And in fact, of the, the three siblings that remained, one was a, a professor at Colorado State University. The other was a doctor who spent most of his life in Africa. He started a hospital in Nairobi, Kenya, and gave his life to medical missions. And then the other was an entrepreneur who had started multiple businesses, sold them, done really well in life. My grandma was a nurse. Like, in that generation of people, to, be, to have that percentage of these siblings be college educated was, was incredibly rare. And one of my uncles started to tell the story of how the Fraley family moved from Kentucky up to Ohio. And at that time in Kentucky, public education, free public education, state-sponsored, ran through eighth grade. And so if you were going to go to high school, you had to pay for it. And because he wanted, he valued education for his kids, he actually moved them up to Ohio where public education ran through, through high schools because it was too much to send um, all of his kids to pay for that in, in Kentucky. And you start to learn some of the backstory of your family, things that have been passed on to you and traditions that have been passed down that, that you didn't know. And we, it's easy sometimes to look at these examples of faith and to see them in isolation and to miss all the things that informed the experience of faith that led up to that. And so part of understanding this, where Joseph, these words that he speaks and and Genesis that are cited in Hebrews chapter 11 is to go back and consider, consider the rest of the story. In fact, turn with me over to Genesis. I want to begin by just looking at these verses at the very end. This is the end of Joseph's life. And it's the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He sold Ephraim's sons to the third generation, and the sons of Manasseh's sons, Makur, were, were recognized by Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid... You are to carry my bones up from here. 
Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. We're going we're gonna to come back to this, but notice Joseph restating the promise of God. He says, God is going to come to your aid. The, the, the ESV says, God will visit you. And when he does, he's going to bring you out of this land and he's going to take you to the land that he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Or in other words, as, as Joseph is, is dying in Egypt, he says to himself, I, I'm going to die here in Egypt, but I am not going to stay in Egypt. God is going to fulfill his promise. Jo- Joseph's faith, his certainty here, it's, it's rooted in God's historic faithfulness to him in situation and in circumstances where it would have seemed that God had abandoned him. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Joseph, let me, let me take a moment just to catch you up on how the family has wound up here in Egypt. If you remember last week, Pastor Joe was teaching on, on Jacob and Jacob's faith experience. And this is, I'm, I'm going to be kind of hitting the high points here. There's Joseph's story, is, it's about 13 chapters in, in the book of Genesis. But Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob. But what was unique about him is that he was the first of the sons born to Jacob's wife, Rachel. And there's a whole backstory here that we're not going to get into. But you remember, there's, there's some dysfunction that has formed in this family. And, um, and when Joseph is born, it becomes evident to everybody that, that he has warranted Jacob's favor. So he's got 10 older brothers and sisters, but it's clear that, that, Jacob, or that Joseph is Jacob's favorite. If you remember, there's the whole example of this extravagant gift, this coat of many colors that is given to, to Joseph. To make matters a bit worse, uh, as Joseph gets older, he starts to have these dreams. And in these dreams, it would appear that Joseph has been elevated to this place of authority and prominence and that the rest of Jacob and his family are actually in submission to you. They're bowing down to Joseph. And Joseph, perhaps unwisely so, shares these dreams with the family. So let me tell you about this dream I had last night. It's crazy, you know? And that, that only seeks to kind of escalate things within the family. And so if you turn back to Exodus chapter 37, verse 4, it says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peacefully to him. Things kind of escalate quickly from there. Verse 18, they, they hatched this plan and it says they saw him referring to Joseph in the distance. And before he had reached him, they plotted to kill him. Th- things are, are so dysfunctional that, that the brothers can't take it anymore and decide that they need to eliminate Joseph just to get him out of there. Um, in a, a moment of the grace of God, instead of ultimately killing Joseph, the brothers decide they can make some money off of him. And they sell him to some human traffickers that are coming by. 
and, and get a bunch of money as a result. They tell Jacob, Joseph's dad, their dad, that, that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal and Joseph is moved into Egypt. When he lands in Egypt, you might know this story, he arrives and he's purchased by a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a, uh, he serves under Pharaoh. So he's a man of prominence and he's a man of power and wealth. And right away, when he brings Joseph into his home, you can read this in the Genesis account, it's evident to Potiphar that God's blessing is on Joseph. So much so that Potiphar begins to just place all kinds of authority onto Joseph. In fact, he says, you are in charge of my entire household. I'm not, I'm not holding anything back from your authority supervision. But it also um, notes that, that Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. And it, Genesis says that he, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Um, and she invites Joseph to, into her bed. And Joseph responds and he says, I, I cannot dishonor Potiphar and I cannot dishonor my God in this way. And so when, she re, when he refuses her advances, she actually falsely accuses Joseph. She, she tells Potiphar that Joseph tried to attack her and, and Potiphar has Joseph arrested and thrown into prison. So his story goes from like horrible betrayal by his brothers he lands in Potiphar's house he begins to be elevated there I mean it's certainly not the situation in his life that he imagined for himself but things are going pretty well for him in that environment and then once again it all falls out from underneath him but as soon as he lands in prison the same story begins to unfold the the warden of the prison notices God's blessing on Joseph and starts to give him all kinds of authority and and, and position even within the prison system. This happens to be the prison of, uh, that Pharaoh places people in. And so at one point in time, Joseph actually is in prison with the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh. And these guys get to know each other a little bit. And once again, they start having some dreams. And, and, and Joseph says, well, tell me your dreams. And he interprets them for these two men. It's good news for the cupbearer, it's bad news for the baker. When it all unfolds, the baker is executed and the cupbearer is restored into Pharaoh's home. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, when you come back, when you are in Pharaoh's household, once again, remember me. And Genesis simply records when the cupbearer was restored that he forgot about Joseph. Joseph remains in prison all the way up to the point in time when Pharaoh himself, himself starts to have dreams that he can't interpret. And everybody is kind of on edge because Pharaoh is upset and, and he's looking for anybody and all of a sudden the cupbearer remembers. And he says to, to Pharaoh, when I was in prison, there was this man there who told me exactly what was going to happen. Maybe he could be, Maybe he could be useful to you. Joseph is, is brought out of prison and he is cleaned up. He's shaving, put clean clothes, and he's brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh begins to tell him the events of his dreams. Joseph has a great line in there because Pharaoh says to him, maybe you can interpret these dreams. And, and Joseph says, um, I can't interpret your dreams, but God will give you, uh, God will give you the answer. He tells him that, that, 
the dreams mean that Egypt is going to be in this season of just huge provision. Seven years where the crops produce and it's going to be more than they need, but it's going to be followed by seven years of famine across the land. And he says, the wise thing to do if I were you would be to store up food in these seven years of plenty so that we're prepared for the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed by what Joseph has said. He's so impressed by what he hears from him. It's so evident that God is working in his life that, that he just, again, once again, puts him in this place of, of supervision and authority. In fact, turn with me over to uh, Genesis chapter 41. This is verse 37 through 40. So Joseph has made this pr proposal to Pharaoh now. He said, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And he said to them, can we find anyone like this? A man who has God's spirit in him. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you are. So Joseph is, is in charge. He's, he's given the responsibility of preparing for this impending famine. This preparation for this family, this is going to be the means by which Joseph's brothers ultimately come to Egypt. They come because they're starving to death and they hear there's food in Egypt. And so they go to Egypt. This, this preparation is the means by which the family of Jacob is actually saved. But beyond that, it's the means by, by which Jacob and Joseph and his brothers are ultimately reconciled back to each other. In fact, just before those verses that we read in, in chapter 50, once Jacob has passed away, Joseph's brothers become concerned that now that their dad is gone, that Joseph is going to enact his revenge. And this is what Joseph says to him there. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. This is Exodus, or, uh, Genesis 50, verse 19. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, the reason I tell this story in Joseph's story in the Old Testament is it's really one of the more familiar ones. Most of you, many of you may have already known those, those highlights. But the reason I tell that story is because I wanted to see this moment that the author of Hebrews cites I want us to see the trajectory that lead up to this. this. This isn't a moment of faith in a vacuum, but rather this is the result of a life of faith wherein Joseph has personally seen evidence to him God's faithfulness, even in the midst of dire circumstances. Joseph has come to the conviction, he's come to the ability that, that his circumstances, what is um, unfolding around him doesn't define who God is, but rather it's the covenant promise of God that defines his circumstances. This is what informs and what empowers him even on his deathbed. 
knowing that he's going to, to die in Egypt, that gives him the confidence to say to his family, remember the promise of God. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've watched it unfold in my life. I know that I'm going to die in Egypt, but I'm not going to stay here. This brings us back then to this, this declaration of faith that Joseph makes. This is the second thing we see here. You can hear this from verse 24 and 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from the land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. I want, to, I want to just address, if we can, real quickly, I think two potential uh, temptations, pitfalls, if you will, as it relates to believing, obeying, following the promises of God. And we could put this succinctly as comfort and discomfort. Right? You know that temptation that we all experience to kind of like settle in, especially when, when we get comfortable? Again, when we were out in out west, we had the opportunity to do these incredible hikes. And um, if you haven't been out there, the landscape is it. Things look a lot different than they do here. So one of my daughters said to me when we got in Colorado, she said, I'm, I'm going to need you to explain to me why you raised me in Illinois. Like, <laughs> and I uh, and we would do these hikes and some of them, they vary in degrees of difficulty, the amount of elevation that changes. And, and oftentimes the hike is to a destination, right? There's something that you're gonna go see. So in Rocky Mountain National Park, there's this beautiful hike up to Alberta Falls and it's, it's breathtaking. And, and yet when you're on the hike, there's moments when you're feeling exhausted and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're, and you're in the presence of all kinds of incredible beauty in nature. And there's this thing that starts to happen to you when you're feeling a bit worn out and you're realizing I've, I've got to come all the way back where you start to say, this is, this is probably good enough, right? Like, look at this view. This is an incredible view. Like, it's not what we set out for. It's not where we were going, but this is pretty good. Can we just say this is good enough? And turn around, head back, take this in. We had a good day. Right? We, when Joseph speaks these words to his family, his context in that moment, things are going well for them. Joseph is in a place of authority and power. They, they have resources available to them beyond what they could possibly imagine. The temptation in that instance would be, let, let's settle right here. Egypt has been good to us. This might not be the experience of, of God's promise, but it's, it's not half bad either. Do you ever recognize, do you ever recognize the need for faith and your ability to, to avoid settling for a, the promise of current comfort? See, oftentimes I can recognize faith, and we'll talk about this in a second, when, when things are difficult or challenging and i i, I want to remain in obedience to god but you ever recognize the need for faith when things are going well and things are comfortable perhaps that's even more necessary for us current comfort is is it's a 
suburban expectation. It's, it's, a, it's a drug of sorts that numbs our pain and, and distracts us from our purpose and it surrounds us every day. And Joseph, he speaks these words from a place of comfort and he reminds his family, he said, this isn't the promise of God. This is, this is not, despite as well as it's going, despite as comfortable as we are, everything that's available to us, this isn't God's promise. Don't settle for comfort. But interestingly enough, despite the comfort that they experience, Joseph's declaration of faith is he actually references and looks forward to a moment in time when the people of God are going to be under intense persecution and actual enslavement. In fact, I would imagine that if you were Joseph's siblings when you heard this, that it might have felt odd to you because it seems to be ominous that they're going to need God to, to come and visit them. They're going to need God to free them, which brings us then to this temptation of discomfort. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. The, the example of faith that he cites in verse 22 for Joseph is he says, by faith, Joseph, as he's nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites. To them, this would be like, why would, what do we need to be, to be let out of here from. He gives them this instruction concerning his bone. Joseph seems to have this insight that their current comfort isn't going to be, it's not going to define their entire stay in Egypt. In fact, Exodus begins with the story of the family of God being oppressed and enslaved. There's a Pharaoh in power who knows nothing of Joseph. He views this family that has now grown significantly over the generations as a threat to his own power, and he enslaves them and forces them to work. And this is their experience for 400 years. And to the midst of this, Joseph says something really important, and he says it twice. He says, God will come to your aid. God is going to come to your aid. They may have not even in that moment felt like they needed God to come to their aid. But he speaks into a future that is painful and abusive and oppressive and a future that would certainly cause anyone to doubt the promise. And into the midst of that doubt, he says, remember this, family, remember what I'm going to tell you. Your God's going to come to your aid. This is what the author of Hebrews cites as an example of Joseph's faith. Because this is, this is at the message, this is at the core of the message of the gospel is that God will come to your aid. In the words of the Apostle John, when he's describing the incarnation in John chapter 1, right? He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God coming to our aid. See, the reason the author of Hebrews cites this moment in Joseph's life is because the promise that Joseph rooted his faith in is the same promise that we root our faith in. God will come to your aid. He is our salvation. And this is ultimately what empowers, what enables Joseph to die in faith. Joseph died in faith. Verse 25. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. I know many of you, and, and um, I've been a part of this sometimes, and certainly had conversations with you when you have lost someone that you love. 
And sometimes if, if that person has been cremated, the family will gather in a place of significance, a place of meaning. And they'll take the ashes of their loved one and they'll spread them out in, in that place. And there's significance, there's purpose behind that. This, this place that they've chosen and I had a family that I knew and loved and their teenage daughter was diagnosed with a severe form of, of leukemia in high school. She passed away uh, at the end of her junior year. And um, about a year later, they took her remains up into the mountains of Tennessee that had informed and, and um, been so significant for them as a family. And they spread her ashes there. Like this, is, this is a place of where she belongs. It's a place of, of meaning. Right? This is not um, dissimilar to what we're seeing unfold here. In fact, I think there's three things that, that Joseph's instructions regarding his remains signify to us, that, that they help us understand. That, that, that Joseph wants to communicate to the people of God. And the first thing is Joseph saying, Egypt is not my home. Egypt is not the fulfillment of God's promise. I don't want to settle here. I'm going to experience what God has promised. And so when God comes to your aid, I want you to take my remains and I want you to take them with you because I'm going to be buried in the promised land. Secondly, it demonstrates that he trusted and placed his faith in the promise of God. Notice the confidence with which Joseph instructs his family. He made them swear an oath, a solemn oath saying, when this day comes, I want you to do this. But then Joseph's remains, this coffin that he's buried in, this served as a tangible reminder of hope. That when the people of God found themselves oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, that they knew they could see Joseph and they could say one day, when God comes to our aid, we are going to bury him in the land that God has promised to us. This is not the end of the story. Do you see why the author of Hebrews, when he's recounting these examples of faith to a community of, of Christians, a community of Jesus followers, that is enduring, in that original context, they're enduring all kinds of, of intense persecution. He cites this moment in the life of, in the life of Joseph. Do you see why Christians return to it for instruction and encouragement? Because he's saying to the Christians, remember, this, this is not our home. This, this is not the end of the story. He's saying to Christians, don't forget that God is faithful to his promise. There will be a day when he is going to enact justice and he's going to set wrong things right and he's going to restore that which is broken, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in the meantime, we have a tangible reminder of hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we look at the cross and we remember what he accomplished. So the author of Hebrews cites, once again, this moment in the life of Joseph because it informs every moment for us as followers of Jesus. What it means to live as a people in between as we receive the promise and we wait for the fulfillment. If you're curious to know the end of the story, we're, we'll get back in this in a couple weeks, but 
in Exodus, uh, Moses is, is leading the people out of Egypt. We're going to look at studying Moses' life next week and the following week. And he says this in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an, a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. 400 plus years after those words, again, the promise of God is faithful. Joseph went with them out of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize even in this moment, Lord, that, that there can be so much in our pursuit of you that, that distracts us and that would seek to pull us off course. And oftentimes our our the trajectory that we take in following you, you feels far more like a, a switchback in the mountains than it does a highway. But in the midst of all of that, Lord, we recognize that you are faithful to your promise. And it's the recognition of that that enables us. Out of that, we can live in faithful obedience to you. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to um, build into us. So Jesus, I pray that we would continue to recognize your, faithful, your faithfulness to us, that we might respond in faithfulness to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.